You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Scott Nelson. Uh, he he's the founder and chair of the Human Data Commons Foundation. Very good, that. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and just going back a little bit, you asked me sort of about my background. Um, I'm an early, I guess, relatively early sort of web uh, entrepreneur. I started probably the first web development company in Canada, uh, in Vancouver, in like 1993. It's very early times. Um, being a computer geek up to that point, um, and so really jumped in, you know, um, in the early days um, on bringing the web into the public sphere, um, and my primary focus then was working around um, sustainability issues. So really working with the, the sustainability uh, community, both business and on um, policy and, and the activism side to get that sort of out in front. And that was pretty soon after the Brundtland report that sort of really brought sustainability into, into the fore. Um, and then I sold out of that company at the end of 99, um, just, um, just before the dot-com um, bubble burst, although I wasn't really sort of part of that thing, um, and became very interested in open source, and that's why my bio sort of says that I've been a strong advocate of open source and open standards uh, since the turn of the millennium, and again, sort of brought open source, uh, really pushed open source and open solutions into the sustainability and um, uh, ecology sort of spheres uh, online. Um, and then my next big sort of transition was getting involved in Bitcoin in, in 2010 and, and blockchain and issues around sort of the the authenticity and verifiability of, of in that case, uh, starting transactions. But of course, it's broadened out a fair bit since then. And then what brought me to the Human Data Commons Foundation was a couple of years ago, I was working with a group. Uh, we were working on a startup around sort of really a transformative tech. You know, we were we were looking at ways that we could pull data sources in from quantified self devices, Fitbits and Garmin's and and things uh, like the Muse, um, you know, anything to do with sort of meditation and health and and collecting that kind of data 
looking at possibly ways combining that with more um, traditional uh, health system data as well. Um, and we just noticed that, you know, in, in order to be sort of trusted in this space with all of that kind of data that we would need to have a structure that was not, um, at least partly not um, focused just on uh, maximizing uh, return. And thus we spun off a, a foundation, uh, which is the, has become the Human Data Commons Foundation. And the, the startup that we were working on uh, actually ended up, because of health issues with my co-founder, um, ended up sort of being shelved, but I kept the, the Human Data Commons yeah. Foundation going. And it really, it focuses on how can we make sort of the best decisions around all of this powerful data that's out there? How can we determine which are the sort of best sources of the data? And what can we do to, to put structures in place that will um, encourage people to share their data for the purposes of advancing you know, human consciousness and uh, conscious evolution, um, but in a way that also sort of protects their, their privacy um, and, and gives sort of places them at the center of that agency around how that data gets used. So that's sort of the overarching narrative behind the Human Data Commons Foundation. Okay, well what, I mean, specifically, are you looking to just use blockchain to give people control of their data, or what's like your primary focus right now, and what, what types of data are you yeah. looking at? Yeah, so I mean, our primary focus is, at least in terms of the activities that we have uh, been involved in since inception, which was uh, two and a half years ago, uh, two main things that, that we've done um, on a yearly cycle. One is we put together uh, an event in Vancouver, which is where we're based, Vancouver, Canada, uh, where it's kind of like a miniature transformative tech conference. Um, I'm also um, a founding um, partner in a um, venture capital uh, company uh, called Humanitas Capital that looks at ways that we can employ capital into um, you know, basically these, these sort of same goals and, and approaching these same problems. And, and so having made a, a number of investments in that sphere, I wanted to bring those people together into the same room, take them through a transformative experiential process um, and see what came out the other end with no sort of expectations that, that anything particular would come out the other end. Just see what happens when you get all these amazing people in the same room and getting them you know, placed in a help generate some trust between them and help uh, help them think of of themselves as co-collaborators rather than purely uh, competitors. And so that's an annual event called uh, Participatory Technology that we hold, and we've held the second uh, two of those so far. And then the other um, activity that we have partaken um, or taken on for ourselves is to try and understand um, and to help inform people about how their data within the quantified self um, sphere is uh, being used. And so with that, we've, we publish an annual, what we call a report card, where we go through sort of the top companies in the wearables and quantified self um, sector, if you will, so Garmin and Fitbit and, and you know, these various things, a bunch that also appear at the Transformative Tech Conference because we're interested in that. And then we, we review them on their um, privacy policies, their terms of service, how the data gets uh, used, and how much agency they give to to the users over the use of that data. And and that's published as a as a you know a report that you can get on off of our website. So we just we just um, published the second of those, second annual one of those in November. So it's very current. Um, 
people want to check out humandatacommons.org, they'll see it right on the right on the homepage there, and they can download that for free. They don't have to give up any information. It does a nice ranking and a very good sort of description of our methodology, how we came to the conclusions that we're at, uh, that we present in there. And um, well, can we go um, in, into a little bit of detail? You know, like what sure, kinds sure. of data do you see right now being used or misused? Which ones are going to be critical for for people to be concerned about? Now. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a huge fan of the work of uh, Yuval Noah Harari. I don't know how familiar you are with his work. He's written several books, Sapiens yeah, and Homo Deus. Yeah. And Homo Deus in particular, um, I think he really delved into into what's, what's central and, and what's going on here. And it's basically, you know, one of the ideas is there's kind of two, this is, this is his, this is him saying this, um, but I totally agree with it. There's kind of two main streams uh, around this, and, and it's how we define ourselves as individuals and how others uh, see us to some extent. And largely, we're moving to a place where we're viewed in terms of the data that we're producing. And, um, you know, certainly I think you see this in, in um, services like anything from Google or Facebook, you know, it is our data that is defines us and makes us important. And from the perspective of, of these players, um, it's how they can sell uh, more to us um, and target, you know, sort of our, our desires, our needs. But, you know, I think you only have to look at things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal um, to see that, you know, when you've got this much data on people and their behavior and, and what, what, um, uh, you know, what their likes and desires and values and stuff are, then, you know, the, the amount of sort of um, manipulation that you can do of them as individuals is, you know, pretty um, scary and impressive. And, uh, you know, I think um, I think there's a lot. We're, we're living in a time right now, I think, where there's a lot of issues around this that are starting to be understood by people. Um, and being, and when I say understood by people, I mean sort of the general population is becoming sort of much more aware of this. So on the one hand, you have things like the Transformative Tech Conference where, you know, I, I really do believe that the people there in that room are like, we want to do this for the best possible purposes. You know, this is about the transformation and evolution of human consciousness, and that's what we're doing here. And that's the data. That's the reason we're collecting this data. That's the goal of this data is to is to advance that as as quickly as possible. And I subscribe to um, to the work of um, American philosopher Ken Wilber and Integral Theory, and I don't know how familiar you are with that, but that has a very sort of transformative and um, evolution of consciousness uh, model sort of wrapped around it, and I think it sort of offers one of the best possible models uh, that we know of currently for approaching sort of complex problems like this, you know, multivariate, multi-party, lots to uh, try and figure out here in, in determining what what the best decision is uh, to move forward with. And then the other sort of real um, elephant in the room here, of course, which is direct, related very directly to this, is you know, artificial general intelligence and the tremendous advances being made in in AI because, you know, the all of these machine learning algorithms that we're seeing being developed so successfully now, right? Like the really um, the advances uh, made in the last, well, certainly in the last five years are just, just incredible. Um, and they're based upon data large in large part, right? And so, you know, these companies, um, 
realize that the sort of the more data they have, the the better the machine learning algorithms that they can produce out of that. That seems to be the case up, up until now, um, and that brings with it sort of enormous power and possibly enormous peril too. You know, we're already seeing lots of um, lots of algorithms being put in place to make decisions, um, and some of them are very innocuous, like you know, Spotify. What's the next song it's going to serve up for me? Well, it looks at what I like and what I don't like, and goes, oh, I bet you he's going to like this one. Tries that one, and you know, it's usually pretty pretty accurate. But there's a, also a lot of um, systemic uh, injustice that can be perpetuated through the use of just putting algorithms in place that are based upon data that may not take other factors into account, that may end up perpetuating um, um, in, injustice and unfairness in ways that we really would rather not have happened. So, you know, it's a very interesting time to be looking at this. There's lots of issues and how the data gets used, you know, who, who has control of it. Um, these, are, these are big issues. And so, you know, we really want to, our, our intention here at the Datacom Foundation is to sort of really bring more attention to that and make, and be part of that conversation. And again, I think that integral theory offers um, a way to approach this that's probably more holistic than anything else out there. If you, if you really uh, dig in and proper and incorporate the, the, the methodology um, um, in the in the fullness that it allows, and it's not to say that. It's well, what's going a, to, what, what, what's an yeah. example of a solution? I mean, I know that the premise makes sense. But yeah. What's yeah. an example of a specific well, solution that's been proposed? Well, I mean, you know, even even to talk about solutions is to is to you know you're already. Uh, stepping onto onto thin ice to talk about offering solutions or being able to make a solution, and I mean, with within our organization, we prefer to talk about processes rather than solutions. I mean, one of one of the issues here is that um, if you've got an if you've got an entity, any sort of entity, you know, a corporate entity like Google or Facebook or a government entity, a government department, or you know, pick the Pentagon or something like that. You know, they've got a certain culture uh, going on there, and that culture is going to have them sort of moving in a certain direction, and things happen that match the culture or don't match the culture, and things that don't match the culture are going to be, you know, they're not going to be given much um, sort of due process or consideration in terms of a direction that they should be going in. And, you know, it's very easy to... Um, well, it's very hard to it's very hard to um, to transcend a culture, and so when the culture is about you know selling ads, for example, and let's just you know give that broadly as a as a culture for one of these internet giants. Uh, if that comes first, then a whole bunch of other things flow naturally uh, from that, uh, which and, and decisions flow from that, and rewards within those how those organizations operate and who gets promoted and who doesn't, and so it, you know it all kind of goes in that direction. And to to break through that and to bring sort of other models to that is a very difficult thing to do um, within those structures. And usually, it's not until there's some sort of you know overwhelming crisis, which you know maybe Facebook is approaching that. I wouldn't be surprised actually. I mean, there's enough going on there and enough unhappiness 
uh, it seems, and enough sort of awareness within the public about, you know, the imbalance um, going on there and how that data is, you know, you know, being leaked and you know not being protected and privacy is not not being respected and you know companies are you know have managed to grab other companies other third party companies managed to grab all sorts of data and people's people's um, perception of the value of their data and the relationship that they want to have with the data that they produce is is changing as well you know I think uh, a lot of people didn't think about it that much and I think there's much more awareness about that um, now so again just getting back to your question just just to say what is the solution, you know, um, it's not an easy question. It's very context dependent, but I think there are these processes um, which um, can help to really bring sort of more awareness, more perspective. I mean, bringing more perspective and including more um, sort of parties in the decisions uh, that happen, I think is, um, is sort of the first um, goal here. And in terms of sort of alternative structures, that's one of the things that I'm personally very interested in. If you look at something like um, there's a there's a cooperative, a health or a health data cooperative out of Switzerland called MyData.coop, M-I-I-D-A-T-A dot C-O-O-P, and I think that what's going on there, if you have a look, is very interesting alternative structure for how to uh, approach the kind of problem that that you know. Uh, um, is is going on here, and what they've done is they've first of all adopted a corporate structure, which is a cooperative. Um, so if you're aware of the sort of the difference between a credit union and a bank, a bank is a very uh, corporate um, structured entity where you know the amount of uh, shares that you own in the company determine sort of your level of of decision making in that organization. A cooperative is a it's a much more democratic structure where it doesn't matter how many sort of how much sort of ownership you have in it, you have one vote that's equal to all the other members in that co-op. Um, so it changes the dynamic um, in terms of decision making. And then the other thing that I think is very impressive, uh, or what I really appeals to me about something like MyData.coop is is the ability for me to join as a member, for me to voluntarily um, include my health and uh, you know quantified self, other uh, sources of data in there, and then for me as a member to choose. Okay, here here comes a proposal from a health company about a study that they would like to do, and they're requesting a data, and it's my um, it's my choice whether I want to include my data for the purposes of the research that is happening there. So that's my individual choice to do that. And moreover, any um, remuneration that flows back in for the use of that data, I get a share of that by virtue of being a member of, of that cooperative. So it's a very different uh, structure than, than we're used to um, and how um, whether it can compete, I think it can compete uh, in a very positive way with some of the other initiatives that are going on, but this is all very fertile ground for for uh, contestation at the moment, for sure. Well, what's the status of data that we've given to Facebook and Google and all those companies? Is it ours? Is it theirs? Is it both of ours? What do you what's your read on? <laughs> Well, my read on it is, I mean, if you look at the original terms of service of, of all of those, it's all theirs. 
and they get to do whatever they want with it. Um, and, you know, the, by and large, people do not read the terms of service and don't understand that this is what's going on, or they didn't. Um, and rather, they were just, you know, blinded by the the ostensible free nature of the service that they were getting. Um, but that is being uh, challenged. Uh, one of the ways it's being challenged at a sort of a uh, legislative uh, way is um, through legislation like the GDPR, the General Data Privacy uh, Protection uh, Regulations that came out of Germany. So those came into effect last year, and one of the things that they do is say, and it's a European directive, so you know how much it applies to uh, American um, services is still being figured out. But if those companies or services want to um, be able to reach the European market, then they have to follow the GDPR, and then. Once they put in place the requirements of the GDPR, I mean, that's a fair bit of work, actually, because, for example, one of the things the GDPR does is it says anybody who wants their data deleted um, has that right, and you have to do it, and uh, you don't even get to keep a, a copy of it as a, as a backup. So for a lot of these organizations, again, I'm just going to use the big ones uh, Google and Facebook, you know, they've got, that was never part of the way that they structured their their technology sort of behind the scenes and in the back end. It was to keep that data forever. And so, but if they want to continue, and this is just one example that comes out of the GDPR, if they want to continue to provide that service to European citizens, they have to incorporate technology into their platform that allows people to delete their data, know it's deleted, be verifiable. and and so on. And that's just one aspect of, of the GDPR that it requires or that it puts in place. And so, you know, this just came into, into force last year. It does have actually interesting implications for blockchain because, of course, blockchain um, is meant to be uh, irrevocable and, um, you know, permanent. Uh, by virtue of the of the cryptographic signing uh, around that data, so there's an interesting sort of tension, uh, which you know we're going to have to see how that resolves between organizations that are um, employing blockchain technology as a way to sort of secure the data and and show you know the transactions that have happened around the data and auditing trail. Those are various um, good uses, in my opinion, of a blockchain technology to, that can be applied to this kind of thing. But then you know, if it's in a blockchain and it's secured into a blockchain and, and the data itself is in the blockchain, which is actually a very poor design choice um, because blockchain is not really made for that at all. Uh, but you can secure other things through a blockchain. Um, then it becomes, by nature of the blockchain, impossible to to honor the the um, that part of the GDPR. So, you know, once it's in a blockchain, it, it's it's uh, it's there forever. So, yeah, I was going to say, um, perhaps blockchain would be great for um, to be combined with the database and to show if the data in that database was ever altered. Exactly. And that it's there, but uh, database yeah. management itself, it doesn't seem to be fast enough or good enough. And you know, there's always projects surrounding blockchain that have kind of like gone quiet. I've seen a little bit of enterprise use, but uh, you know, they seem to all have uh, gone by the wayside. So, do you think that blockchain well, is going to be a savior of people's data, or is it just in a phase where it's building up, or what's you know, what do you see? 
Yeah, I mean, I got into blockchain purely because of the currency aspects, because, you know, I felt that um, that the natural evolution of currency um, once we move sort of beyond the nation state center of currency, which is still the case now, obviously, right? It's all national currencies. I use Canadian dollars, you use American dollars. American dollar, of course, is the is the um, is the global reserve currency. It's accepted everywhere, but that's rapidly changing as geopolitics sort of you know shift and, and evolve as well. So, to my mind, my the reason that I was so interested in getting into blockchain was not about the blockchain aspect of it. that was interesting but it was the fact that it was a it was a censorship proof um, global currency and you know I'm less I, you know having having been in that space now for well I guess we're getting close to 2019 almost nine years nine years actually I think the day after tomorrow I first got uh, involved in, in Bitcoin um, Having watched that evolution and uh, seeing, of course, the the um, sort of the waves in um, the value of it, right, and the the run up in value and then a crash. I mean, you know what we saw um, between this time last year and now. Well, you know, I'm pretty calm about that because that's the fifth one that I've I've been in that saw a big run up and then a crash of like 80% of the value and then drift along and we'll probably drift along roughly in this same space if the if the pattern holds for you know it could be another year before probably another crazy uh, run up in my opinion and having been through through five of these but you know there was so much hype last year and with hype and with people making you know a lot of money uh, in a short time you know, there's, um, well, a couple of things come out of that. First of all, a lot of fraud, a lot of uh, scams and and projects that, you know, are just there to, to suck money out of people. And, and you know, and, and there was a tremendous amount of that last year. You know, everyone could spit out a white paper and raise a couple of million dollars in just like a few weeks. Uh, didn't take a lot. And so it's not surprising at all that a lot of those projects have not gone anywhere. But, you know, there's still a lot of very interesting projects out there, and I'm still a, a, a true believer in, first of all, the currency aspect of it, the transnational currency. Um, I think that's here to stay. Um, and certain aspects of the, the blockchain, and there's a couple in particular that I've watched closely, which are, uh, you know, related to transformative tech, in particular, singularity nets, and I don't know if you've um, if you're familiar with the work of Ben Gertzel, no, what do they work at? Oh, okay, so they're they are they're working on something very interesting. They were they were at Transformative Tech, um, so they're based out of Hong Kong, and their thing is to create um, artificial intelligence, artificial general intelligence, and the way that they're doing it is um, is to create open source sort of modules, um, uh, a platform called OpenCog. So it's different aspects of cognition is what they're what they're working on, and then you can combine the different aspects of, of the cognition, use, plug in sort of your own data and your own, um, uh, your own algorithms into it to create um, 
you know, an AI, and then you can add that AI to sort of a market of AIs that run on a blockchain. And so the idea, the goal is to, for there to be all of these AIs that are using this blockchain to sort of bid for projects with each other or bid for services that they can provide to each other uh, on a blockchain. So very interesting um, very interesting um, thought about our direction, I think, a very promising one, in order to build sort of this meta structure of AIs that, that have a way of, uh, you know, auditing and bidding and providing uh, services and, and data for each other. So that's one. The other one that I'm very interested in, I'm also, I should say, uh, an early, I think the first investor in one out of Berlin, Germany, called Ocean Protocol, which is a, which is a data marketplace on a blockchain uh, for AI. And so the, that came out of a project that they were hired to do by, by Toyota on Toyota's um, self-driving cars. And they you know, looked at the data that, that Toyota had collected and they came to the realization that, wow, we need another trillion miles of driving data in order to crack them out of, of self-driving cars. And so it doesn't make sense for any one car manufacturer to have to generate that data. It also doesn't make sense, even, it makes even less sense for each of them to be doing it in a, in a silo, right? Knowing that each of them has to generate a trillion miles of, of driving data in order to crack this nut. Instead, why not have some kind of data marketplace for this? that would reward people or give them a share in the in the research or access to the research that came out the other side. So you could pool the data from Toyota and from GM and from Honda and from whomever, and everyone gets access to it. The more data that they're putting in, that they're collecting, then the more uh, access and the more return that they get uh, for it. So again, it's kind of this cooperative model for, for how that data uh, can be used. And that's, and, and again, you want to have... Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Oh, we covered a lot of ground. So what, um, you know, it sounds like people need to do a lot of their own investigating and, you know, looking at different resources and ideas and thoughts. So what are, what are some uh, resources for listeners where they could find out more? Yeah, well, certainly our our site, I think, is, you know, it's a good little start around this issue. Uh, so humandatacommons.org. Um, I know that uh, in the States, the Electronic Frontier Foundation has been doing a lot of work around around this as well, around um, data rights and how your data gets used. And, you know, and I think you're going to see a lot more tools coming online as well, which allow you to sort of get a better handle on where your data has gone and, and help can you sort of navigate the space that's that's coming here around the GDPR and your new rights under the GDPR? Um, so the EFF is good. Um, we're good. Um, I would say Mozilla's been doing quite a bit of good work around this as well. Um, Mozilla Foundation. Um, yeah, I mean those those are those are some some great starts to to look more into this. You know, one of the one of the sort of challenges that I put out at the Transformative Tech uh, Conference because I was on a panel about sort of data ethics and how do we figure this out. And I presented my data co-op as a as as a um, sort of case in point, I think, for for um, or an interesting example that this community might want to think about, right? Like if you know if the goal if we're all moving in the same direction, then again you can kind of look back at Ocean Protocol as, an, as a good solution to that, I think. Why 
why not share our data and figure out how to do that um, in, in the best possible way? And that's that's really what we're about. The other technology that I'm a big fan of just in terms around privacy and stuff is actually, a, again, a German um, project called NextCloud. And that's a self-hosted sort of privacy-centric HIPAA-compatible, uh, GDPR-compatible um, 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 Internet basically, or it's you can think of it kind of like um, Google Docs plus you know a, chat, a video chat system, so Hangouts, but private, so that you control all of the data on it, all of the access to it, um, and that that quite frankly is what helps make it um, HIPAA and GDPR compliant. Um, is is that you know you're you're sort of controlling that, and so I think. That's another great existing um, technology that's out there to, to help help promote this, and that people should be looking at for the purposes of, of their projects. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Well, Scott, I appreciate you coming. And, uh, there's a ton of thought that still needs to go into uh, you know how data is used and how people are going to use it. So I appreciate you speaking on it. Thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you. And yeah, it's it's an exciting time, and I think it's evolving very quickly. And you know, just sort of bringing a bit more attention around that and processes and ideas for how to do that in the, in the best possible way. And thank you for what you're doing and sort of bringing a critical eye to where this is going and, and what it looks like. That's, that's really important. So thank you. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.